Chapter 21 Vietnam The Advisory Years to 1965 by Robert Futrell and Martin Blumenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Betty B. Chapter 21 End of the Advisory Phase Viet Cong night outpost and hamlet attacks doubled in intensity during the last half of 1964. They were especially severe in the third and fourth corps tactical zones. In October, the enemy scored marked successes in the two corps, which had been almost pacified a few months earlier. General Moore thought it just a matter of time before the Viet Cong tried to spring a psychologically damaging surprise raid or a mortar bombardment on a major air base. Although the Vietnamese were responsible for interior security and perimeter defense, the second air division had its own force of one officer and 280 airmen as additional guards. Proper aircraft dispersal was virtually impossible at the overloaded airfields, thus inviting sabotage or attack. This prompted PAC-F to ask sink pac in August 1964 to allow one of the two B-57 squadrons to move from Bien Hoa to Tak Li. Action was put off until October when General Harris spoke personally with Admiral Sharp. The latter then permitted half of each squadron to return to Clark Air Base for training. This trimmed the number of B-57s on alert at Bien Hoa to 18, but the field remained overcrowded and poorly defended. How insecure Bien Hoa was became clear on the night of November 1st when a Viet Cong mortar squadron penetrated the Vietnamese perimeter defenses. The ensuing 30-minute barrage killed four and wounded 72, destroyed five B-57s and one H-43 helicopter, and damaged 13 B-57s and three H-43s. Vietnamese losses totaled two killed, five wounded, three A1Hs destroyed, and three A1Hs and two C-47s damaged. Some houses, a mess hall, vehicles, and fuel tanks were also destroyed or damaged. The attack provoked discussions on countermeasures at the highest levels of government in Washington. The Joint Chiefs of Staff had previously agreed on positive action against North Vietnam, but differed on the severity, timing, and location of that action. The major point of indecision stemmed from the stand of Ambassador Taylor. He held that the United States could start no strong move against North Vietnam until a stable government existed in Saigon. Consequently, planning for an air campaign had continued on a contingency basis. At the end of his first year in office, President Johnson remarked that his principal advisors had made no unanimous recommendation for air activity against North Vietnam. As noted earlier, Secretary of Defense McNamara put hard questions to the Joint Chiefs regarding the effects of bombing the 94 strategic air targets identified in North Vietnam. In their reply, the Chiefs accepted SINCPAC assurances. The targets could be attacked without depleting fuel and ordnance needed to meet a Chinese intervention. SINCPAC had already prepared a plan to attack all the targets in 20 days. Since there was no doubt that Hanoi was administering 
and sustaining the war, General LeMay pushed for Air Force and Navy airstrikes on North Vietnam's source of supply. He felt that interdiction would be far more expensive and much less efficient than closing North Vietnam's ports and destroying the supplies by strategic bombing before they started south. General Green, the Marine Corps Commandant, had backed LeMay, but the other chiefs supported Ambassador Taylor's view. LeMay countered that there could be no sound Saigon government without morale-building offensive operations. The Vietnamese military establishment was the sole stabilizing force. If that collapsed, the United States might well have to fight to get its military advisors and their dependents out of the country. Now, the Bien Hoa attack spurred the Joint Chiefs toward a strong reprisal. On November 1st, they verbally recommended to Secretary McNamara immediate U.S. airstrikes against infiltration targets in the Laotian Panhandle, airlifting U.S. Army and Marine Corps units to defend Da Nang, Tan San Nut, and Bien Hoa, and assembling U.S. Air Force units within 60 to 72 hours for air operations against North Vietnam. The air campaign would consist of an initial B-52 night strike flown from Guam against Phuc Yen Airfield, first light naval airstrikes on other airfields and the Hanoi Haiphong oil storage areas, and rapidly progressing attacks against the entire 94 targets listed. Angered by the Bien Hoa affair, Ambassador Taylor favored limited retaliation against selected North Vietnamese targets by American and Vietnamese aircraft, coupled with a policy statement warning of a similar U.S. response to future incidents. President Johnson's civilian advisors, chiefly Secretaries Rusk and McNamara, counseled patience. The president listened. He was concerned about the upcoming election and about possible Viet Cong action against American dependents in Saigon. Ruling out an instant response, the president ordered quick replacement of the destroyed and seriously damaged B-57s at Bien Hoa. He further directed a National Security Council working group, chaired by William P. Bundy, to outline political and military options available against North Vietnam. In its early deliberations, the Bundy group leaned toward restrained action. In contrast, the Joint Chiefs on December 18th recommended First, a hard-hitting, fast, full-squeeze air campaign against North Vietnam, completed in 20 days. Secondly, as a fallback position, they proposed tightly controlled and gradually increasing air pressure over a two-month period. Meanwhile, on the night of November 6th, Air Vice Marshal Nguyen Cao Ki led 32 Vietnamese A-1Hs against a Viet Cong camp in Zone D. The mission was a widely announced reprisal for the Bien Hoa incident. According to South Vietnamese intelligence reports, the attack caused 500 enemy casualties. On the 16th, the Viet Cong troops in Zone D forayed out and battled Vietnamese forces for six hours near Ben Cat. General Khan personally directed a massive operation in response. 115 U.S. Army and Vietnamese helicopters lifted 12 battalions of ground troops to the fringe of Zone D near Ben Suk. They killed 163 guerrillas, 83 by air, and captured 68. 
these and other sizable vietnamese assaults did not deter the insurgents surrounding saigon severe floods from typhoons in november together with resurgent communist activity virtually collapsed governmental authority in the ten central provinces as the floods receded the Viet Cong moved in to take almost complete control of the countryside in the populous quang gay and binh din provinces the enemy confined the government's presence to district towns and provincial capital cities vietnamese ground forces could open a road briefly by committing four to six battalions of troops but as soon as they withdrew the guerrillas moved in constant Viet Cong actions kept the army units off balance and cost them dearly in men equipment and morale the enemy seemed to easily recruit replacements for his losses and the national liberation front stood ready as a shadow government to seize power when the saigon regime crumbled during a press interview in saigon on november twenty first ambassador taylor depicted the principal problem in vietnam as the dual inability to form a solid national government and to stop Viet Cong reinforcement. The ambassador realized the military value of airstrikes against Laotian infiltration routes and North Vietnamese infiltrator training areas. He suggested a few selective bombings, but clung to the belief that a sound government in Saigon was the first priority. On the other hand, the Joint Chiefs more and more accepted the U.S. Air Force position. Stopping Hanoi's support of the insurgency was a prerequisite for a stable Saigon regime. William Bundy's National Security Council Working Group outlined three possible courses of action for the United States. One envisioned reprisal attacks, intensified covert operations, resumption of offshore naval patrols, and stepped-up Laotian T-28 attacks. Another called for the fast, full-squeeze bombing of North Vietnam favored by the Joint Chiefs, which Bundy termed almost reckless, an invitation to Chinese intervention. The last specified a slow squeeze of air attacks on infiltration targets in North Vietnam. All three would give an impression of steady and deliberate pressure building while permitting the United States to halt at any time. Bundy and Assistant Secretary of Defense John T. McNaughton liked the last option. Ambassador Taylor arrived in Washington on November 26th to join conferences on strategy. He advocated U.S. actions to restore adequate government in Saigon, refine the counterinsurgency campaign, and convince or compel Hanoi to cease helping the Viet Cong. Taylor set out a three-phase program. The first phase was to consist of heightened covert actions, anti-infiltration attacks in Laos, and reprisal bombing, all to stiffen South Vietnamese morale. The second would afford more air attacks on infiltration objectives in North Vietnam. The third was to ultimately destroy all important fixed targets in North Vietnam. He thought, much like Bundy, that the first phase should start at once. The ambassador believed that U.S. aircraft ought to take part in the air operations over Laos, the initial phase of the stepped-up action. This would demonstrate American willingness to share in the risks of acting against North Vietnam. Armed reconnaissance strikes on infiltration routes in the Laotian panhandle 
would signal a deeper U.S. involvement in the conflict and a resolve to back the governments of both South Vietnam and Laos. Briefed on December 1st, President Johnson accepted the premise that a stable South Vietnamese government was the first essential to end the insurgency. On the second, he approved the first phase military actions. He said that subsequent ones would project progressive air bombardment to the north rather than by functional target systems. At first, the heavier Laotian T-28 and U.S. Air Force strikes along Laotian infiltration routes, as well as special covert maritime operations, would be psychological warnings to Hanoi. After an unspecified transitional period, air attacks on North Vietnam would begin against infiltration objectives just beyond the demilitarized zone. Then, moving northward to the 19th parallel, the strikes were to eventually hit the Hanoi airfields and Paul storage, while naval forces mined and blockaded North Vietnam's ports. Upon his return to Saigon on December 7th, Ambassador Taylor stressed to Vietnamese leaders that Washington wanted political stability above all. In line with the President's decision, a joint state defense message on December 8th instructed the U.S. Ambassador in Vientiane to seek approval for American airstrikes on hostile communications in Laos. The go-ahead was given on the 10th and Secretary of Defense McNamara authorized two missions a week, each consisting of four aircraft. This very restricted bombing was nicknamed Barrel Roll. Weekly, a National Security Council committee was to designate two segments of the line of communications for armed reconnaissance, as well as a fixed target for ordnance remaining at the end of the route sweep. Both U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy planes were to play a part, with MACV acting as the local coordinating authority. Publicity was forbidden as were attacks on the Laotian people. Targets of opportunity had to be unmistakingly military activity of a transient or mobile nature. Fixed installations could be hit only during attacks on clearly identified military convoys and personnel, or as secondary targets. No mission could be launched from Thai bases or carry napalm. Secretary McNamara's explicit and detailed orders left little room for combat commanders to specify tactics, ordnance, routing, and like matters. Admiral Sharp, SyncPAC, was impressed with the high-level national interest in the armed reconnaissance program. He gave the maiden mission to the F-105 Thunder Chiefs of PACAF's 80th Tactical Squadron at Korat, Thailand. Sharp selected a section of Route 8 for the armed sweep and the Nape Road Bridge as the target for unused ordnance. The 15-plane force took off from Da Nang on December 14th. Three RF-101s served as pathfinders and damage assessment craft. Eight F-100s flew combat air patrol to guard against MiG interference. Four F-105s carried 750-pound bombs, 2.75-inch rockets, and 20-millimeter ammunition. The mission achieved slim results because the heavy ordnance load led to miscalculation of time and distance. Short of fuel, the F-105s made a hurried attack on the bridge and missed it. Navy planes flew on December 17th. Four A-1Hs escorted by eight 
F4Bs conducted armed reconnaissance of routes 121 and 12, with the Ban Buong Bao road bridge as the fixed alternative. The aircraft failed to damage the bridge, but destroyed eight buildings at one end. The next mission sent four F-100s of the 428th Tactical Fighter Squadron along Route 8 on December 21st, lightly armed with CBU-2As and 2.75-inch rockets, the fighters became disoriented after receiving heavy flak, ran low on fuel, and found no secondary target. Reports on the first two U.S. Air Force missions disturbed General LeMay. He sent word to General Moore that he expected higher professionalism, even though he recognized that the tight curbs complicated air operations. To prepare for the fourth mission, PACAF's 44th Tactical Fighter Squadron deployed six F-105s from Okinawa to Da Nang. Four of them reconnoitered Route 23 on December 25th with a strike against the military barracks at Chipone. The operation went well, though the dive bombing at Chipone was inaccurate. During the fifth mission on December 30th, four Navy A-1Hs struck the military camp. Planners for a mission on January 13th chose the Banken Bridge, the most important potential checkpoint on Route 7. Aerial photos showed 34 anti-aircraft guns, 37mm and 57mm in place, with up to 70 more firing positions built but not occupied. The planners scheduled an RF-101 as pathfinder and another for bomb damage assessment. Eight F-100s carrying CBU-2As for flak suppression and 16 F-105s from the 44th and 67th Tactical Fighter Squadrons as strike aircraft. The two flights of F-100s were to fly low level and abreast across the gun sites to knock them out with cluster bombs. Immediately thereafter, the F-105s would attack the bridge. Each of the first eight F-105s were to drop eight 750-pound bombs. This would be followed by eight F-105s loaded with six bombs and two AGM-12B bullpup air-to-ground missiles. An Air America C-123 was to serve as airborne control for rescue helicopters. The F-100s pummeled the gun positions, but some firing continued. The first wave of F-105s cut the bridge with their 64 bombs. The F-100s and the second wave of F-105s made multiple runs on the gun sites. The mixed ordnance of the F-105s requiring at least three passes to expend. Moreover, the Thunder Chiefs had to descend into flak range to control their missiles, and one plane was downed. An F-100 on its fifth pass was also shot down. Four other aircraft were damaged. General Moore said that poor judgment was displayed in the attack. To escape the losses, the planes should have broken off the engagement after knocking out the bridge. While it seemed impossible for ground transportation to bypass the Banken Bridge, the communists within three days converted the top of a dam just upriver into a traffic route. Press reports of the two lost aircraft prompted Senator Wayne L. Morse to charge that the air operation violated the 1962 Geneva Agreements on Laos. Armed reconnaissance sweeps by 7th Fleet aircraft on January 2nd 
and 10th, 1965, detected no enemy. On the 15th, as 6A1Hs reconnoitered Route 23 at night, the flight leader became separated from the flare plane and wandered west of the road. He sighted and attacked moving trucks and also adjacent buildings that turned out to be the friendly village of Bantang Bay. No further secondary targets were assigned for night missions. Admiral Sharp, near the end of January, took a close look at this relatively small interdiction campaign, conducted at least risk and under tight control from Washington. He concluded that the program could be better managed from Laos. He insisted that militarily effective interdiction had to be constantly and completely responsive to the tactical situation. General Harris, the PAC-F commander, agreed that the missions were too few to sway Hanoi. Still, they may have imparted political strength to the Laotian government at a critical juncture. In late January and early February, an armed coup was defeated. Meanwhile, in South Vietnam, General Khan and several associates had seized power from the provisional civil government on December 20, 1964. Ambassador Taylor strongly protested, and after that the relations between him and Khan were strained. Taylor was apparently concerned that the feeble Saigon government might yield to elements clamoring for a ceasefire and coalition with the National Liberation Front. He may therefore have hinted that U.S. advisors were about to take command of the Vietnamese armed forces. In any event, the unstable conditions in the country encouraged the Viet Cong. They increasingly turned from hit-and-run guerrilla tactics to more conventional mobile warfare by regular units. This pushed the United States into stronger support of the counterinsurgency. Secretary of Defense McNamara had already made clear that the conflict was chiefly a ground war in which aviation could make only secondary contributions. While this strategy precluded the full use of tactical air power, the rather small Vietnamese and U.S. air operations were central to saving the Vietnamese ground forces from piecemeal defeat. On December 9th, for example, A-1Hs from the Vietnamese 516th Fighter Squadron struck a Viet Cong force and left 33 enemy dead. The force on December 7th had attacked the An Lao district headquarters in Binh Dinh province and ambushed government relief troops. In the three-day battle, the foe inflicted battle losses of 28 killed, 50 wounded, and 22 missing. Also on December 9th, a Viet Cong battalion assaulted and overran a government battalion command post and 105-millimeter howitzer platoon near Tam Ki in Quang Tin province. A U.S. Air Force captain joined the 18-strike sorties flown by the 516th Fighter Squadron against the Hill position. All the strikes were directed by an O-1A pilot and Vietnamese observer who were in the air for 10 hours. Direct hits on the artillery site exploded ammunition and killed enemy gunners. The last flight of four A-1Hs landed at Da Nang after sunset when the ceiling was under 500 feet and visibility less than a mile. Government troops retook the ground and confirmed 162 Viet Cong killed, 85 by air. Friendly losses totaled 26 killed 
and 33 wounded. During the night of December 10th, two Viet Cong battalions struck outposts at Long Mi in Chuang Thien province and ambushed relief forces. A U.S. Army L-19 and a U.S. Air Force O-1F located the ambush and put four covering A-1Es on the camouflage foxholes. U.S. Army helicopters from Sok Trang held the enemy until Vietnamese and A-1Hs arrived and delivered ordnance in the face of intense ground fire. One A-1H was downed, three A-1Hs, and five helicopters damaged. By fine teamwork, the A-1Hs and armed helicopters killed about 400 of the 1,500 enemy troops and probably saved a government battalion and a regional force company from being overwhelmed. Viet Cong night attacks on hamlets and outposts soared to a new high. A total of 96 incidents took place over the last 10 days of December, drawing flare and strike aircraft. The planes forced the foe to break off the assault in 94 of the cases. Still under test, AC-47 gunships joined the air alerts and performed well. On the night of December 24th, for example, an AC-47 used its miniguns to blast guerrillas off the wall of a fort under siege. At night on December 27th, two North Vietnamese regiments raided the hamlet of Binh Gia. The next morning, a reinforced ranger battalion aided by three armed helicopters, tried without success to relieve the hamlet. That evening, the Viet Cong hit the rangers at the nearby town of Nghe Jiao, but were driven off. On the 29th, 24 U.S. Army UH-1Bs, protected by 15 armed UH-1Bs, lifted two other ranger companies to a landing area near Binh Gia. Small arms and machine gun fire claimed three of the helicopters. One ranger company fought its way out. The second was overrun. The defeat seemed to have stemmed from the absence of pre-planned coordination of tactical air support for the Helleborn operation. Another factor was the late request for fighters, made only after the loss of the three helicopters. Eight A-1E sorties covered the downed UH-1Bs, Four Vietnamese H-34 helicopters carried ammunition into the area and evacuated wounded. A C-47 flare ship lighted the scene through the night. Escorted by 15 armed UH-1Bs, 26 UH-1Bs lifted the 2nd and 4th Marine Battalions into the zone. Eight helicopters were hit and one exploded, killing the crew. Finally, on the afternoon of December 30th, Four A-1Es and five A-1Hs responded to requests. The strike aircraft blasted two spots in the rubber forests around Binh Gia that reportedly sheltered two Viet Cong battalions. At the same time, H-34s evacuated and 49 wounded men. A C-47, four A-1Es, and one AC-47 furnished night illumination and fire support. The 4th Marine Battalion battled its way into the rubber forest on December 31st and was soon surrounded by the enemy, identified from captured documents as the 48th Main Force Viet Cong Regiment. The Marine commander radioed the U.S. Air Force forward air controller overhead for air support. Four A-1Es responded 
and hit enemy positions with napalm and general purpose bombs in the afternoon eight a1es were scrambled and sent to the scene but the senior ground commander ordered them returned to bien hoa because air support had not been requested through vietnamese army channels armed helicopters tried to launch strikes later that day however they learned from u s marine corps advisers with the surrounded battalion that the thick branches of the rubber trees absorbed the rockets and machine-gun fire from the air attacking at dusk and using massed automatic weapons the viet cong overpowered the fourth marine battalion all through the night of the thirty first three c forty sevens two c one twenty threes one a c forty seven and four a one h's supplied flare fire support even so just two hundred thirty two of the five hundred thirty two men of the fourth marine battalion managed to straggle back to bin jia general khan took personal charge of a large operation set afoot in phuoc thuy province on january first nineteen sixty five c one twenty threes flew the first and third airborne battalions from tansanut to vung tau then helicopters whisked them to the battle area on january second helicopters transported the seventh airborne battalion directly from bien hoa tactical fighters supported continuing operations with cover and escort landing zone preparations and strikes on enemy positions on the fifth of january eight a one e's were each loaded with one lazy dog xm forty four canister and normal high explosive ordnance the aircraft employed the lazy dog missiles against viet cong troops firing at u s army helicopter observers government troops kept clear of the lazy dog zones but u s army air observers reported that after the drops they no longer received ground fire an intelligence report stated that the viet cong carried away from the strike areas fifteen ox-cart loads of dead and wounded at general khan's order government battalions with tanks and armored vehicles continued to swing through the safer areas of phuoc thuy province from january tenth through february fifteenth a small air support operations center managed the flights aiding the massive sweeps the operations achieved little for the viet cong evaded ground contact analysis of the bin jia defeat revealed a failure to use available fixed-wing air support properly armed helicopters were unable to provide the needed firepower as the mac v j three reported the armed uh one b did not possess heavy enough ordnance to destroy the vc in prepared positions or deter their assault since they were concealed under a dense canopy of trees meanwhile an incident in downtown saigon brought the united states to the verge of direct all-out action on christmas eve nineteen sixty four a three hundred pound charge exploded in the brink hotel bachelor officers quarters for u s advisers killing two americans while injuring sixty four americans and forty three vietnamese admiral scharf and the joint chiefs recommended an immediate reprisal on december twenty ninth president johnson ruled against it the brink hotel explosion a direct attack against and an open challenge to the united states was ominous but the battle at bin jia was potentially disastrous 
to u.s officials in saigon it was a highly visible defeat of serious proportions on december thirty first ambassador taylor reversed his thinking bolstered by deputy ambassador u alexis johnson and general westmoreland he sent a joint message to washington it advocated american air action against north vietnam despite the persistent weakness of the saigon government attention then turned to the airstrike aircraft on hand attack planes in vietnam numbered forty eight u s air force a one e's and ninety two a one h's of the vietnamese air force this combined force could fly about sixty combat and thirty training sorties a day air vice marshal keys need to have an elite palace guard flight of standby a1H's at Tan Sanut constrained Vietnamese combat sorties. These planes were piloted by highly trained, screened, and politically dependable personnel who routinely flew strike missions in the 3rd and 4th Corps areas. However, assignments to thwart coups and to control dissidents often diverted them from action against the Viet Cong. Although individual Vietnamese strike crews performed valiantly, the growing independence of unit commanders diluted the control of the air operations centers. Typically, 50% of the aircraft were held on five-hour ground alert. A squadron deciding to fly would call for a target about an hour before the end of its ground alert and receive a set of coordinates for attack, usually in a free strike zone. Hence, it was difficult to scramble or to redirect aircraft to meet emergencies. Early in January 1965, the Vietnamese 62nd Tactical Wing and a detachment of the 516th Fighter Squadron's A1Hs deployed from Pleiku to Nha Trang, where work was to start on a new runway in February. The move stationed these strike aircraft too far away to properly support the critical highland provinces, including Pleiku and Kantong. Ambassador Taylor now wanted to use the U.S. Air Force B-57s at Bien Hoa in combat. He also wished to put off indefinitely the plan to form a 5th and 6th Vietnamese fighter squadron so that the Vietnamese could focus on operations in lieu of training. PAC-F on January 12, 1965, suggested that heavier air demands argued for greater air assets. It asked for 13 tactical strike squadrons in Vietnam, seven to be U.S. Air Force jet units, extra U.S. Air Force air liaison officers, and tactical air control parties to extend direct air support nets to province and sector levels, and at least 175 U.S. Air Force and Vietnamese 01s, more if continuous air reconnaissance was authorized. Defending the role of U.S. Army helicopter gunships, General Westmoreland said that they had performed magnificently at Bien Gien. At a briefing on January 13th, he asked if stepping up air firepower made sense in Vietnam. In other words, were there significant and vulnerable targets in Viet Cong sanctuary areas, and how could they be brought under attack? General Dupuy, the MACV J-3, addressed the question in a paper that was largely the work of U.S. Air Force Colonel Alan C. Edmonds, Deputy Assistant Chief of Staff J-3 for AIR. 
targets were available the study said and lifting the curbs on using u s air force aircraft in the country would expand air power this could best be done by drawing on guam based b fifty two bombers as well as u s navy carrier aircraft on south vietnamese offshore stations for air facilities in vietnam were scarce and overcrowded the vietnamese ground forces were apparently unable to give a high degree of security against Viet Cong attack of air bases, and it was hard to haul ordnance and aviation fuel to Vietnamese airfields. Air staff analysts agreed with part of the study. Calling on aircraft outside the country would indeed alleviate the airfield security problem. As early as December 9, 1964, General LeMay had suggested sending U.S. ground combat units into Vietnam for air base defense. The Navy and Marine Corps had demurred, saying that it was contrary to national policy. The Army had objected on the ground that four divisions would be needed to defend 18 operating sites. As for the supply system, there was no doubt that conveying POL and ordnance was cumbersome, slow, and risky. This was especially true when done by barges, lighters, and trucks requiring security guards. On the other side of the coin, using aircraft located outside the country could hamper attempts to improve air base security and Vietnamese air facilities. Both were long overdue. Although the B-52 bombers were unmatched in all weather, heavy saturation attacks, the long flights from Guam would be expensive. Furthermore, using these strategic bombers would reduce SAC's worldwide deterrent posture. While the interest of General Westmoreland in tactical air was encouraging, he failed to understand 2nd Air Division and PACAF hopes for building a well-rounded air command, coordination, and control structure in Vietnam. On January 24, 1965, General Moore advised General Westmoreland that the fastest way to bolster air power was to make full use of the U.S. Air Force resources now in the country. Moore believed that the most compelling needs were to let U.S. Air Force jets fly missions in South Vietnam, do away with the requirement to carry a Vietnamese observer or trainee on operational missions, and remove helicopters from air bases to allow an expansion of facilities. Some optimistic signs emerged from the lingering debate on air demands. A measure of political stability in Saigon seemed to give the Vietnamese armed forces confidence and initiative. A MACV press release told of air attacks killing about 2,500 Viet Cong in November and December 1964. Given these indications, were more strike planes really required? Vietnamese and U.S. Air Force A-1s flew 2,339 combat sorties in January 1965, filling every request for close air support. The combined air forces flew a total of 4,550 sorties, yet could not meet 50% of the requests for all types of air activity. Estimates showed that all of them could have been met had there been no operational restrictions. In a saturation test during January 19th to the 21st, Vietnamese and U.S. Air Force A-1s dropped 800 tons of bombs on pre-planned targets in the Bois Loire woods of Zone D Ranch Hand, 
C-123s then began a massive defoliation program in Bois-Lois to cover 48 square miles of dense forest hiding a key Viet Cong base. The operation tied up many of the combined strike aircraft. On January 26th, in a separate action, two government battalions surrounded an enemy battalion near Ap Bak. Helicopter gunship and A-1 strikes accounted for half of the estimated 450 insurgents killed that day. Late in January, the Joint Chiefs secured approval for using U.S. Air Force jet aircraft in a strike role within South Vietnam. If Ambassador Taylor agreed in advance to each mission, and if these strikes could not be carried out by Vietnamese A-1s. According to this formula, Taylor could authorize jet airstrikes solely to save American lives or to spoil huge Viet Cong attacks like the one at Binh Gia. He could do this only if the Air Support Operations Center certified that conventional aircraft were unavailable and if a Corps Tactical Zone Commander, the Vietnamese Joint General Staff, and MACV all thought the action necessary. As for airstrikes on North Vietnam, President Johnson rejected them in January 1965, despite his growing conviction that the feeble Saigon government needed help of some sort to survive. Trials and tribulations, including militant Buddhist opposition, prompted CIA Director McCone to expect Khan to fall from power and a serious political crisis to follow. On January 23rd, in a speech interpreted by some observers as a bid for negotiations, William P. Bundy suggested a diplomatic meeting similar to the 1954 Geneva Accords as the answer for a secure and independent South Vietnam. Five days later, Presidential Assistant McGeorge Bundy informed President Johnson that he and Secretary McNamara were pretty well convinced that our current policy can lead only to disastrous defeat. The preferred alternatives were to use our military power in the Far East and to force a change of communist policy or to deploy all our resources along a track of negotiation aimed at salvaging what little can be preserved with no major addition to our present military risks. Secretary of State Rusk opposed both options. The consequences of both escalation and withdrawal are so bad, he said, that we simply must find a way of making our present policy work. Not sure whether to support Saigon more vigorously or to disengage from a losing proposition, the president on February 4th sent a fact-finding party headed by McGeorge Bundy to Saigon. The party's arrival coincided with a visit to Hanoi by Soviet Premier Alexei N. Kosygin. Since Khrushchev's departure from power in October 1964, Kosygin had tried to restore closer Russian ties with Hanoi. He and a sizable Moscow delegation that included top Soviet Air Force officials reached Hanoi on February 6th. According to the Chinese, Kosygin hoped to persuade Hanoi to halt military aid to the Viet Cong as a precondition to negotiation as William Bundy seemed to have suggested. But in McCone's opinion, Kosygin sensed an imminent Viet Cong victory and wanted the Soviet Union to share in it. Kosygin would probably offer more economic and military aid and encourage stepped-up warfare in South Vietnam. 
Consequently, McCone proposed that the United States start air attacks on targets in North Vietnam. These would commence at the 17th parallel and work progressively northward. Conflicting signals stopped on Sunday morning, February 7, 1965. Viet Cong mortar squads and demolition teams attacked the small U.S. advisory detachment in two corps, four and one-half miles north of Pleiku. In addition, they struck Camp Holloway, headquarters of the U.S. Army 52nd Aviation Battalion, also near Pleiku. The joint assaults killed eight Americans and wounded 104, destroyed five Army UH-1B helicopters and two CV-2 transports, three U.S. Air Force O-1Fs and one Vietnamese O-1F. Moreover, the teams damaged the main building of the advisory detachment. Bundy, Westmoreland, and Taylor jointly sent from Saigon their recommendation for a reprisal strike, and President Johnson ordered an instant air response. That afternoon, U.S. Navy aircraft and on the 8th Vietnamese and U.S. Air Force planes hit enemy military barracks near Dong Hoa in an operation called Flaming Dart. At the same time, PAC-F air transports commenced to lift U.S. Marine Corps light anti-aircraft missile units from Okinawa to Da Nang and to evacuate U.S. dependents from South Vietnam. The Viet Cong struck on the 10th near Ki Nong, taking 23 American and 7 South Vietnamese lives. On the following day, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy, and Vietnamese Air Force aircraft in Flaming Dart II, pounded troop barracks in the North Vietnamese Panhandle. The Joint Chiefs quickly ordered the deployment to South Vietnam and Thailand of four and one-half U.S. Air Force tactical squadrons from bases in Japan, Okinawa, and the Philippines, and the movement of 30 B-52s to Guam. South Vietnamese control deteriorated in all of the core tactical zones as Viet Cong action exploded. On February 8th, a major enemy force crossed Route 19 between Pleiku and Kinong. The crossing occurred even though four A1Es dropped lazy dogs and killed about 100 of the enemy. The attackers then enveloped and damaged two battalions of the 40th Regiment and a troop of M115 armored personnel characters in Vinh Binh Province. That night, an AC-47 poured 20,500 7.6 rounds into the area, killing around 250 enemy soldiers. To shore up the two core defense, General Moore ordered eight A1Es to Kinong, where conditions were unsafe in every respect. Staying close to the scene of action, each pilot flew at least three strike sorties a day and significantly helped to blunt the enemy offensive. On February 13th, President Johnson gave the green light to measured and limited air attacks on North Vietnam. Called Rolling Thunder and planned for swift execution, the strikes were delayed for two weeks by political and military turmoil in Saigon and by bad weather. The capital was directly and immediately threatened by the Viet Cong 9th Division, which had no less than two well-armed regiments under forest cover in Phuoc Thuy province. The mystery of how these troops were getting modern weapons was solved on February 16th. A U.S. Army helicopter pilot discovered 
and Vietnamese A1H's sank a steel-hulled vessel at Vung Ro Bay. An investigation turned up 100 tons of arms and ammunitions at a nearby cove at Cap Varela. The U.S. 7th Fleet at once started naval patrols to stop these deliveries. General Westmoreland wanted to send B-57 light bombers against the Viet Cong 9th Division base camps in Phuoc Thuy province, which had been pinpointed by infrared reconnaissance. Securing emergency authority on February 17th, he planned to launch the planes on the 19th. On that day, dissident military leaders revolted against General Khan. Their troops seized Saigon and took part of Tan Sanut to ground Key's anti-coup air force. But Key got his planes in the air as C-47s brought loyal troops from the One Corps to clear Saigon of the rebels. The Armed Forces Council then removed Khan and exiled him. At the height of the coup crisis in Saigon on the afternoon of February 19th, four B-57s from Bien Hoa flew the first open U.S. Air Force mission in South Vietnam as they bombed Viet Cong base camps in Phuoc Thuy. The aircraft struck again during February 21st to 24th, while Key kept most of the Vietnamese Air Force A-1Hs on counter-coup alert and out of combat. Judging on February 21st that the United States was not fully committed to winning the war in Vietnam, General Westmoreland was ready to change the nature of the American involvement. He would make more use of jet aircraft within South Vietnam, restore U.S. markings to American-manned A-1Es, and abolish the requirement for Vietnamese observers in American planes. Enemy action on February 24th involved the elite communist battalion that had apparently just arrived in the Central Highlands. The battalion surrounded a ranger company and a civilian irregular defense group company on Route 19 in the An Ki Valley near the Mang Yang Pass, where the Viet Minh had wiped out a French mobile group in 1954. General Westmoreland used his emergency authority to commit U.S. Air Force jet aircraft in an all-American relief effort. F-100s, B-57s, and A-1Es covered and supported U.S. Army UH-1Bs that rescued the surrounding men. The covering attacks by the 613th Tactical Fighter Squadron F-100s, 405th Tactical Wing B-57s, and 602nd Fighter Commando Squadron A-1Es cost the enemy 150 men killed. They also allowed the helicopters to land three times in the area without a single casualty. The copters evacuated the 220 officers and men who, according to Colonel Theodore C. Metaxas, U.S. Army II Corps advisor, would otherwise have been lost. The employment of B-57 and F-100 jets marked the end of the long U.S. combat advisory phase and the beginning of direct and open American action in the Vietnam War. On March 1st, the new commander-in-chief of the Vietnamese Armed Forces, Major General Tran Van Minh, established the Vietnamese Air Force Air Request Net as the primary means to obtain immediate air support for all regular and paramilitary operations. He further removed the restriction that only a Vietnamese forward air controller could mark targets for airstrikes. After approval by higher headquarters, 
the Joint Chiefs of Staff on March 9th directed that U.S. aircraft could be used for combat operations in South Vietnam. No strikes were permitted from Thai airfields, and American aircraft were not to accept missions that the Vietnamese Air Force could carry out. But the planes now boldly displayed U.S. insignia, and a Vietnamese airman was no longer required to be aboard in combat. The United States Air Force advisory effort spanned the decade between 1955 and early 1965, from the time the United States formerly took over the training of the Vietnamese from the French until American aircraft first openly engaged in combat. During this interval, the Vietnamese Air Force expanded from a few hundred to over 10,000 men. Its five squadrons of obsolete French and American planes at two air bases swelled to 14 squadrons and almost 300 more modern aircraft at five major air bases. In addition, the Vietnamese Air Force forged a chain of command mirroring that of its American advisors. Most of these changes took place through the final three years of the period when the threat from the North grew ever more serious. The U.S. Air Force experienced parallel growth in Southeast Asia during the decade. In the late 1950s, there were 68 airmen stationed in Vietnam and 44 in Thailand. From 1961 on, these numbers gradually rose, and on the eve of Americanization of the war, stood at 6,604 and 2,943, respectively. By February 1965, the Air Force had 222 planes in South Vietnam and 83 in Thailand. 70% of those in South Vietnam were clustered around the Saigon area, operating from Tanzanut or Bien Hoa Air Base. The remainder were up north, primarily at Da Nang. One-third of all these aircraft were C-123 transports, operating for the most part out of Tan Sanut. Reconnaissance missions also originated from Tan Sanut, flown by RF-101s and RB-57s on temporary assignment. This Saigon base further housed a handful of F-102s for air defense. The attack fleet of 48 A-1Es for in-country strikes was positioned at nearby Bien Hoa, also the headquarters for the forward air control mission performed by 22 O-1Fs. From Da Nang, the Air Force operated one transport squadron and one temporary duty squadron of F-100s for missions in Laos. A sprinkling of support aircraft rounded out the total. The U.S. Air Force presence in Thailand was still small at the start of 1965. Air defense of the country was provided by four F-102s from Don Wang Airport outside Bangkok. Farther upcountry, a squadron of F-105s at Udorn Royal Thai Air Force Base, RTAFB, and another at Tak Lee, RTAFB, flew against the infiltration routes in the Laotian Panhandle. At Udorn RTAFB, just south of the Laotian capital, 20 T-28s worked to stem the Pathet Lao Tide in northern Laos. These were supported by eight air rescue helicopters from the same base. None of these aircraft took part in operations in Vietnam. Despite this sizable swelling of personnel and aircraft between 1955 and 1965, 
the U.S. advisory mission failed to end Hanoi's support of the insurgency in South Vietnam and Laos. The decision early in 1965 to replace advisors with combat troops recognized two facts that had come clear in late 1964. Infiltration from north into South Vietnam was growing rather than tapering off, and the government of South Vietnam, still unstable since the assassination of Diem, could not cope with the situation. U.S. policymakers saw the confluence of these two factors spelling defeat for the South unless a new approach was taken. Thus, the purely advisory function was abandoned in favor of direct U.S. air and ground participation in the conflict. The U.S. Air Force units in place early in 1965 would form the nucleus for the coming buildup. End of section 21.